Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we conclude our series, Make It Count, with a message titled, Safely Home. So turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 to 22, as we join Dr. Neufeld now. I've known of more than one person who at the point of death took care of a number of details that they didn't want to be left undone. And I know of one man who was dying in the springtime, but he made sure that there'd be someone to mow his lawn all summer so that his wife would have one less thing to worry about as she adjusted to being a widow. You know, reading the last part of 2 Timothy can seem like that. A bunch of housekeeping duties, but if we look more closely, we'll also see that Paul's doing much more. He's preparing to go home. So I'm reading 2 Timothy 4, 13-22. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. All the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, did that sound like, you know, the last housekeeping duties of a man about to die? Well, perhaps. But we're going to dig just a little deeper, and we're going to see that this is a portrait of what a man or a woman looks like when they're preparing to be called home to their eternal dwelling. This is the portrait of a man faithful to the end and ready to embrace his eternal calling. We're going to look at six things that a godly dying man was extremely concerned about. So here's the first item. Paul was concerned that right unto the end, he would be studying the word and concerned that his walk with Christ would continue to grow. So look again at verse 13. When you come, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, we don't know anything about this man Carpus, but Paul says that he had left his cloak with him, and the word that's translated as a cloak seems to indicate, you know, some kind of a blanket made up of coarse wool with a hole in the middle for one's head to pass through. So, more than likely, they had no sleeves. It could be worn as a cloak, but it could also serve as a, you know, as a warm blanket on especially cold nights. If you think of it as a poncho, well, that's probably right. And given that winter was coming, Paul must have known that he would be cold, and he was thinking how nice it would be to have it then. And it must also have been that at another time, you know, perhaps during the summer when it was hot, and when it was bulky to carry it along, he found a faithful Christian in Troas with whom he could store that coat. So please notice here that Paul's not asking anyone to donate something to him, only if it were possible for Timothy to stop with this brother and retrieve his property and get it. You know, it's a picture of Paul traveling light, not having the wherewithal to carry everything along. And on that note, Paul's not only concerned for his ability to ward off the winter cold, he's also asking for his books and the parchments. 
So the books Paul speaks of here were most likely papyrus rolls, and the parchments were probably made of animal skins, and for that reason they're more durable than the papyrus. And in any case, we need to ask, what was Paul expecting to receive? So let me use an example taken from much later. William Tyndale, in the 1500s, or in the 16th century, as we like to say, he was a great Bible translator who translated the Bible into English at a time when it was illegal to do so. He believed strongly that all people should be able to read the Bible in their own native language. And for his trouble, Tyndale was arrested and he was placed into prison in the city of Vilvordi. You know, the year was 1536. Eventually, he would be burned at the stake. But it was while in prison that he made several requests. In view of the approaching winter, he asked for a cloak, a woolen shirt, and a warm cap. But that wasn't all. He asked for his Hebrew Bible, his grammar, and his vocabulary so he could study. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul wanted the scriptures to be brought to him so that he could study. And for some, that seems most strange. I mean, after all, why would he want to do that? I mean, eventually he would be executed, and so wasn't the time of study now over? And Paul would have said, never. It's been quite a few years ago now, so I don't think anyone's going to remember who I'm talking about, but I remember a member of my church, when he lay on his deathbed, being approached by a member of my church to read scripture to him during those days on his deathbed. But this man said, no thanks. He said, I'm way beyond that now. And for my part, I was never sure whether that man was genuinely saved. You know, we never get beyond the Word. The Word of God will be the subject of fascination for all eternity. And Paul, in the last months of his life, was keenly concerned that his study materials be brought to him so that he could concern himself with the one thing that sustains all who believe, and that one thing is the Word of the living God. And so that's the first item of concern for this godly man. His concern was that until Christ calls him home, that his mind should be taken up in the study of Scripture. So now let's consider the second item. He's concerned that Timothy should be aware of the threats to the true faith. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. You know, we really don't know who this man was. You know, some have suggested that, you know, as a coppersmith, he was perhaps involved in some way in the idol-making industry and that Paul's preaching of the gospel had cut into his profits. And so he reacted by organizing a riot or some other form of persecution. I mean, perhaps he even physically abused Paul or perhaps he had informed on Paul to the authorities. But from the context... You know, it would appear that Paul's, of course, living in Rome, and some have suggested that, you know, Alexander might have appeared at Paul's trial, testifying to the danger that Paul's gospel had to not just the idol-making industry, but the danger he posed to the empire. And so it may be that he had fabricated evidence against Paul, ensuring that Paul received the death penalty. Again, we can't be sure. You know, all those are simply theories, but whatever his role was in Paul's life, the damage he did was clear. And what's more, we can see that Paul is concerned that he might now target Timothy as well. Timothy must be on guard against this man. But I noticed something else in this message. Paul is convinced that the Lord will repay Alexander. And years ago, Paul taught that very principle. Listen to what he wrote in Romans 12, 19. 
He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, there needs to be in all of our lives a deep trust in the promises of God. Do you know that no one is getting away with anything? You know, it may be that the wheels of God's justice seem to grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. So imagine the image. The picture is of two large millstones, one placed on top of the other, each very heavy, each turning slowly in the opposite direction. And the grain is poured into a hole in the top of the millstone, and as the millstone turns, the grain very slowly moves down the hole, and by the time the grain finds its way to the outside, you know, coming out between two large stones, well, it's as fine as dust. That's a great image of the judgment of God. Nothing escapes God's notice. And that's what brings Paul peace here. He doesn't need to invest emotional energy shaking his fist and seeking revenge at Alexander. No, no. Alexander is in the hands of God's sure justice. But the lesson to Timothy is that he needs to be aware of this man when he comes to Rome. Watch out for him. Notice what he's attempting. Don't be naive around him. But when it comes to vengeance, leave that in the hands of God. It is the theology of a God of vengeance that brings a peaceful spirit even in the midst of suffering. Now, the third thing the dying man is concerned about. Look at verse 16. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So it seems to me that Paul had at least two defenses he was called upon to make. Many have suggested that the first one was very much like what we might call a preliminary hearing today. That is, was there enough evidence against him to warrant a full-blown trial? And if my musings about Alexander the coppersmith are correct, it would then seem that Alexander had no problem whatsoever stepping forward and bringing his slanderous charges against Paul. And Paul was then in dire need of witnesses for the defense. And instead of stepping forward, Christians stayed away. I have no doubt they were afraid. No one came to stand with him. I suppose a great many people just, well, they don't like trouble. And because of that, when Paul needed an advocate, well, no one was there. And it stunned Paul, and it was no doubt a cause of great pain. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage you spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at one 800 663 2425. Some time ago, I got an email from a very old friend, and a lot of things had happened since we were in direct contact with each other, but one thing that he said that struck me. He said, I'm still a Christian, but I don't like Christians. I stared at those words for a long time. 
And there's a story behind every such statement. I mean, most often the story is one in which Christian people have deeply disappointed us, and, you know, that disappointment now marks our lives. Now, is that you? So if it's you, would you listen to the experience of Paul? He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Now, I'm assuming that Luke, Titus, Crescens, and Tychicus, I mean, they weren't with Paul in Rome at that time. But there was a Christian community there. Indeed, there was a church. We remember that Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church there. And in that book, he called them those loved by God and called to be saints. He thanked God for all of them, and he expressed his deep longing for them. And he had written them the most thorough treaties of all that he had taught in every place. He also told them of his plans to take the gospel to Spain and how he was looking for them to take an active role in this wonderful missionary opportunity. But there was more. You might remember some of the events that had occurred during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. He had told the Philippian Christians how his imprisonment had encouraged the Roman Christians because they saw in Paul a lack of fear. And that had emboldened the church as a whole. You see, Paul had a marvelous impact on that church. But then what happened? In his second imprisonment, and please remember that persecution had been ramped up considerably, but, but now like Peter at the trial of Jesus, the Roman church had denied they'd ever known Paul. And when trouble came, the Roman church acted out of fear and not faith. And because he had no witness to support him, Paul would lose his case And it was now at a place where he was most likely to be executed. I know Christians who are bitter with fellow Christians. They remember which Christians have disappointed them, and more, they remember which Christians have hurt them. And like my friend in the email, they still have faith, they just don't like Christians anymore. That feeling of betrayal, of, you know, witnessing the lack of concern in an important time in their lives, well, that's something they remember. And that deep sense of inner grief just crushes the spirit. How does Paul respond to such a moment? Well, notice his only response is gracious. May it not be charged against them, he says. Do you see the difference between verses 14 and 16? When it comes to fellow believers, Paul doesn't say God will repay them. No, no. He says, oh, Lord, don't hold this against them. Paul never forgets the vast difference between believers and unbelievers. And in this, he models love for us. He remembers how graciously Jesus treated Peter. And we who linger on the wounds and hurts that have come to us at the hands of fellow believers, please remember that Paul didn't take those wounds to his deathbed. He will be pleading with God for the welfare of believers, acting out of love, not out of remembrance of disappointments and hurts. It's something for all of us to remember. Forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ. See, it might not be possible to reconcile. It always isn't. The circumstances will dictate that. But it's always possible to forgive from the heart and deeply bring the other to Christ in prayer. Now, if you can do that to fellow believers, you're on the way to finishing well. I know that some can't, but even now, it might be you, my dear listener, who are holding deep anger, unforgiveness, or a sense of betrayal toward a fellow believer. Can you forgive them? Yes, you can. Now, you might respond, no, I can't. But then, can you help me? Well, yeah, I think I can help you. Look at the the fourth thing this dying man is concerned about. He's concerned about the power of God in his life. You can be too, verses 17 and 18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
You know, as Paul thought about those very dark moments when he stood virtually abandoned. You know, if he let himself think rightly about it, he remembered the sufficiency of God's power. But what does Paul mean when he says that he was rescued from the lion's mouth? Well, we do know that this is a very well-known biblical metaphor, meaning that he had been rescued from danger. Now, we can't be absolutely certain about this, but it seems to me that at the first preliminary trial, that it might have been possible for Paul to have been immediately executed. But in spite of the slander of Alexander the coffersmith, and in spite of the lack of witnesses that appeared on Paul's behalf, Paul was spared immediate execution. And that's so important because Paul needed to take care of essential things before the Lord called him home. And so Paul, instead of remembering, you know, the bitterness of the cowardness of fellow Christians, he chooses rather to concentrate on how God strengthened him and allowed him to care for hundreds of details so that the message of Christ could be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles. And what do we learn from that? Well, the answer is learn to concentrate not on those areas where you've been hurt and disappointed, but rather be overwhelmed with God's intervention. And in regard to that, you'll have to ask God to show you all the wonderful things that he's done for you. You'll have to exercise the discipline of gratefulness to God. Now, the fifth lesson from a dying man. Notice Paul's confidence that he will make it safely home. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And when Paul says that the Lord will rescue him from every evil, of course, he doesn't mean to say that he knows he's going to be exonerated at his trial and then released. The evil Paul has in mind are those evils that would cause him to falter at the end and not finish his race well. There will yet be for Paul one more great trial. But Paul is now looking beyond that. The same God who has safeguarded him through all of his trials will safeguard him now across this last great danger. Nothing will separate him from the love of Christ. God will bring him safely home. How important it is to hear this from Paul. If you fear death, or if you fear that your faith might not hold out through trials of death, well, then hear these last words from Paul's pen. He expressed confidence that the Lord Jesus would safely deliver him into his kingdom. And when Paul says, to him be glory, he's communicating something very important. The glory for finishing well and being brought safely home does not go to Paul and his steadfast faith. Rather, all glory goes to God who had made promises to Paul, and that this same God would fulfill those promises. His confidence is in God and not in himself. To God be the glory, not to me. Now, finally, the sixth and last thing the dying man was concerned about. He was concerned until the end about the community of the faithful people of God. Now, verses 19 to 22. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. And I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Those are the last words of Paul. They include a list of names, some that we've heard about, like Prisca and Aquila, others like Pudens and Linus. Well, we don't actually know who they were. But here at the end, Paul remembers the details of people he has served with and where they were today. He remembers who's ill and who serves where. In short, Paul, the man with great victories and with disappointments, you know, from people, 
never falls out of community. If you want to know what Paul was thinking about at the last, he's thinking about the people he has served with. You know, I've been a pastor long enough now to to see some of these very simple truths. Over and over again, I've witnessed the same phenomenon. There are Christians who live at the very edges of Christian community. You know, for a while they attend Sunday services, and then one wonders where they went, and then they show up again. And they always remain at the periphery and never at the center. And maybe that's you. So can I make this appeal? Do you know how desperately you need the people of God? So here's my appeal. Come into the heart of community. Join a small group. Sign up for some area of service in your church. Enter into the lives of others. See, I know one day very soon now this race we have begun will reach the finish line. And when it does, where are you going to be? Will you be among the judgmental and among the bitter and among the disappointed? Or are you going to be standing at the center? Will you say, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Whatever else happens, my dear brother or sister, make sure that this is what you can say. Listen to Paul in his last hours. Take it to heart. Be faithful and enter safely into our Father's kingdom. Thanks for your message, John, and the series. But can I ask you to give us some advice for those particularly who have been authentically hurt by another believer? How are we able to move on with peace in our hearts? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think we need to come to the Lord and confess that we are hurt and that we have a difficulty and we struggle with the idea of forgiveness. However, here's a couple of things that you can do. When you've been hurt by someone, can I ask you to do this point of discipline? Begin by praying for that person that has hurt you. Ask the Lord to bless them. Ask the Lord to do well in their lives. If there's an issue that you notice in them, I mean, look for ways of uh, asking the Lord to bless them. And then you might then add your own blessing to that. And if you should say to yourself, yeah, but they're getting away with everything. No, no, nobody's getting away with anything. The Lord knows how to handle each believer. Simply ask the Lord to give you a heart of forgiveness. And then also remind yourself of how you were forgiven of a much greater sin when you sin against God. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us today. And remember to join us again next week, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. February is International Ministries Month, a time to celebrate the ministry work being accomplished in partnership with our friends in India, Sri Lanka, Curaçao, and beyond. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to providing ministry support, Bible teaching programming, resources, content, and international pastors' Bible teaching conferences impacting hundreds of national pastors. Most recently, funds were provided to Back to the Bible India to translate, produce, and distribute thousands of Dr. Neufeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, throughout India in 10 different languages. God is at work through these opportunities, and your gracious gifts have provided the means to partner in ministry far beyond our borders. This month, would you consider an additional international ministry gift to help reach the 2022 International Projects goal of $50,000? Back to the Bible Canada has a global vision the size of our global mission. Thank you in advance. 
Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.